This morning, we are going to start uh, an Advent series. We've been, typically, we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for a long time, and uh, we're going to take a break uh, for the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, and we want to kind of prepare for the Christmas season. So I want to start with a little bit of a Christmas survey here, okay? So uh, just a show of hands or a hoot or something that lets me know I'm not in the room alone. How many of you have completed your Christmas shopping already? Wow. Impressive. Impressive. Uh, Or, well, whatever. Um, how many of you will re-gift a present this year to somebody? Yeah, okay. I've got a good re-gifting story that I can tell you uh, sometime. Uh, and how many of you are nervous, maybe not the right word, not looking forward to spending the holidays with your family? Is anybody here that I... Okay, a little Jerry Springer action. What? Uh, Christmas is fun, isn't it? It's a fun time. We get to do lots of fun things. We have all these cultural celebrations that we participate in. And what we want to do, as has already been indicated uh, this morning, but what we want to do in this Advent series is really prepare our hearts for what is to come. Uh, There's going to be this reality, this tension that we are going to live in. All of us are going to live in as we have the reality of the Christmas story presented to us from a number of different perspectives. Uh, One of the perspectives that we're going to hear the Christmas story presented to us um, from or in is what I would call the gospel of culture, uh, where where Christmas is presented as this happy holiday, uh, cinnamon dolce latte, peppermint mocha latte, red cup, like just cheer and joy. And while there is much to celebrate about the Christmas season, there, there is a deep reality that it is much more than that. And so my hope is, as we take the next four weeks to prepare for Christmas, that we're going to press into uh, this particular theme, this particular word, this word Advent. Uh, because one of the things we can do, and I think we do this in the church if we're not careful, is, is we actually gloss over the, the deep richness that is the Christmas season. Uh, one of the things that I think we can be... Uh, guilty of in the church is just moving from one celebration to the next celebration to the next celebration. And I understand why that is. It's happy. It's easier to do these things. Uh, but, I, but I would argue two things. One, that's not the narrative that we see in the Word of God. It's not the narrative we see in the Scriptures. The narrative we see in the Scriptures is not always happy. It's not always uh, go lucky. It's not always smiley. The, the Bible, as we've already read and experienced in some ways, This morning, in a very real way, presses into the deep longing and suffering that is the human experience. Which leads me to my second contention. I think if all that we do is celebrate the happy, cheery, fluffy aspects of the Christmas season in life in general, we're not actually doing justice to the human experience. I think on some level, we all recognize that the human experience is one of deep brokenness. It's one of pain. It's one of hardship. And one of the things that we don't do very well in our society is acknowledge that. We don't sit in our brokenness. We don't sit in our pain. We don't sit in our hardship. We don't grieve. We don't experience that deep place of longing and broken. We just want to move past it. 
And so this isn't going to be like, you know, dark and depraved Christmas at West Village, but it is going to be pressing into the reality of the way that the Christmas story unfolds for us through the narrative of the scriptures. And so we're going to have what we call an Advent series. And an Advent, the word Advent literally means the waiting or waiting for an arrival. And Advent is not really a Christmas word. It's not really a Christmas theme. It's actually a theme that we see all throughout Scripture. In fact, I would argue that Advent is one of the, the meta themes that we see all throughout Scripture. If you're just to thumb your page or thumb your fingers through the pages of the Bible, what you're going to see is that this idea of waiting or this idea of adventing or awaiting the arrival of something is there all the time. Uh, the, the, the story of God, if you're familiar with it, starts in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God makes the world good, he makes it perfect. But in Genesis 3, brokenness and sin enters into the world. And from that point forward, the story of God is looking ahead to this day where God is going to restore everything back to the way it should be. And then nested within this larger story, of the, this larger Christian story, are all these sub-stories where we see the people of God are in Advent, they're in waiting. We just sang a song about it, where the people of God are, are in slavery to the nation of Egypt, and God's people, the nation of Israel, are longing for God to rescue and redeem them. They are longing for God to save them. And then, of course, as the story of God progresses, we have this long period of silence, 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and then what we know as the arrival of Jesus, what we would call the incarnation or the Christmas story. And again, there's this long season of Advent. There's this long season of waiting. But the Adventing, the waiting, the, the, the longing, it doesn't, it doesn't end there. If you have a Bible uh, or a phone, if you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table, there are gift to you. But go to, go to Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, we, we see a picture of Advent. We see a picture of longing. We see a picture of waiting. Starting in uh, verse 6, it says this of Acts chapter 1. Now, let me just set the table here for us. At the end of the story of Jesus, we get this picture of Jesus going to the cross, being buried in a tomb, resurrecting from the grave, and then he's spending time with his disciples. And so this is post-cross, post-resurrection. Jesus is with his disciples. He's having an interaction with them. And he says this in verse 6. Then they gathered around him. That's the disciples gathering around Jesus. And they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What are they asking? They're like, Lord, we've been waiting. We've been adventing. We've been waiting for you to restore everything back to the way it was supposed to be. Is this the time that you're going to do it? Are you going to do it now? Look at what Jesus says, verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In verse 9, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. This is what we call the ascension. Jesus ascends into heaven to go be seated at the right hand of the Father. And then look at what it says next in verse 10. They were looking, they, the disciples, Jesus' followers, were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. These are angels. 
Verse 11, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. The beginning of Advent. And here we are, waiting, longing. Jesus, when are you going to come again? We're waiting. We look out at the world, and while we might not be in slavery to Egypt, we are enslaved. We're enslaved to brokenness. We're enslaved to hardship. We're enslaved to all kinds of things. We have pain. We have suffering. And even if we don't know the, the Christian story, the Christian gospel, there's this sense in us that we are longing for things to be made right. And what the Christmas season reminds us is that in the darkness, in the deepest place of our longing and our brokenness, God is still there. And we wait for the day that he will return all things to the way they should be. And so what we want to do over the next several weeks is be reminded of that story. We want to be reminded as we encounter the gospel of culture, the Christmas story of culture that is about sheep and it's about shepherds and it's about baby Jesuses and those are good things. We want to celebrate those things. But what we want to do is ask the question, what's going on behind those things? This isn't just historical data. This is something that changes and transforms us. How does it do that? And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a few weeks and we're basically going to work through one verse. Isaiah chapter 9 Verse 6 says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called, and this is what we're going to do over the next four weeks, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this morning what I want to do, by way of introducing this series, is really just kind of unpack Isaiah chapter 8 and 9, and set up the context for us. Because in order for us to really grasp what is happening in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we really have to understand what is happening throughout the entire story. And so uh, what I want to do today is kind of give us a sense of the backdrop of what is happening in the nation of Israel at the time that Isaiah made this prophecy roughly 800 years before the birth of Jesus. So what's happening, the landscape in terms of what is happening uh, with the people of God at this point is that it was a tumultuous time for the nation of Israel. Uh, There was all kinds of political upheaval. And so the political upheaval, the geopolitical upheaval that was happening in the region caused all kinds of division. There was division in the nation of Israel. Uh, The nation of Israel at this point in its history was divided into a northern kingdom and into a southern kingdom. Uh, There was division in the entire region. One of the things that was happening, we see this in Isaiah chapter 8, is that the nation of Assyria was coming into the region, and they were one of the nation's superpowers coming into the region, and and they were posing a a global threat, a global, in the sense of the global reality at the time, threat to all the nations around it. And so what was the situation for the nation of Israel was that they were faced with a couple of options. Uh, what was happening with the nations around them is that they were all forming political alliances, starting to uh, come together to preserve their own nation. And they were inviting the nation of Israel into some of those alliances. 
Uh, but then the nation of Assyria posed an extreme threat. Like these were bad people, not just bad people, but really, really bad people. Uh, one hist- uh, historical author writes this about the nation of Assyria, commenting on the degree of uh, wrath that the Assyrian army would bring whenever they would invade a country. He says this, I built a pillar at the city gate, and this is the king of Assyria speaking, I built a pillar at the city gate and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted. And I covered the pillar with their skins. I'm not going to say anything about that. Some I walled up inside the pillar. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Some punishments, uh, such punishments were not uncommon. Furthermore, inscriptions recording these vicious acts of retribution were displayed throughout the empire to serve as a warning. So the bottom line is the nation of Assyria, really, really, really bad dudes. So you have the nation of Israel stuck between a rock and a hard place. They have the nation of Assyria coming upon them, and they have a choice. We can either surrender to them, or we can enter into a political allegiance with the nations around us. Now, look at Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. This is what God said to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. So in other words, what Isaiah is saying, what God is saying through Isaiah to the people of God, don't follow the ways of the other people. He says, verse 12, do not call conspiracy uh, everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. So in other words, what uh, God is saying to the people through the prophet Isaiah is, I realize there's all this hardship in front of you. I realize you're, you're forced to make a decision here, but here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to do what everyone else, all the other nations are doing. I don't want you to look to the nations to save you. I want you to look to me. I want you to fear me. I want you to put your hope in me. I want you to put your trust in me. Now, go down a few verses. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 through to the end of the chapter, and look at what the people did. We see it's indicated to us through the words of Isaiah. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? These are all rhetorical questions indicating this is functionally a rebuke from the prophet Isaiah indicating what the people did. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. And when they are famished, they will be enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. And then they will look forward to the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. So God says to the nation of Israel, the Assyrians are coming, I know, but here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to look to the nations for your rescue. I don't want you to submit to the Assyrians. I want you to put your hope and I want you to put your trust in me. And what we see here in these verses is that the nation of Israel failed. They did everything except that which God asked them to do. They looked everywhere in the midst of their hardship, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their suffering, 
accept God. They look for all kinds of hope and help from somewhere else. And on some level, this lands with us, doesn't it? I mean, maybe we don't have a situation where we have Assyrians knocking on our doors. But certainly on some level, we've all had these moments where it feels like, it feels like functional Assyria is coming upon us. It feels like life is hopeless and helpless. We've all had these moments where we've, we've, felt like crying these prayers, something to the effect of, of God, where are you? I, I thought you said you were going to take care of us. I thought you said you were going to look out for us. I thought you said you would help us. It doesn't feel like you're there. We, we've probably all had circumstances that feel like in some way they are, they are suffocating us the weight of unmet expectations, the, the reality of, of just feeling like there is no hope and there is no help. And if we haven't felt that, if we've never experienced that, the, the reality is our, our lives might have the, the, the perception that, that they are secure and safe, but we are one bad doctor's appointment, one bad economic turn, one wrong turn at a stop sign from that all being taken away from us. And so on some level, I think we, the, the human experience can resonate with the people of God who were forced into this situation where they had nowhere to turn but God, and yet they didn't. You see, at the core of what Isaiah was calling the people of God to do was to not be like the nations around them. To be different, to be set apart. And so that begs the question for us, are we a set apart people? Do our lives, whether we are in plenty or want, do they look the same or do they look different than all the other nations, all the other people around us? There's a great litmus test for this. If you want to know, if you're like, well, I'm not sure, here's the litmus test. Could you live the life you're living right now without the Spirit of God? See, to be the nation of Israel and to sit in this moment, this historical moment, and to actually say no to outside help and to say no to the submission to the Assyrians, it would require supernatural strength and supernatural fortitude to get through that moment. And while we might not put our hope and our trust in the nations and we might not put our hope and our trust in the Assyrians, we certainly put our hope and our trust in other things. We certainly put our hope and our trust in our bank accounts. We certainly put our hope and our trust in our families. We certainly put our hope and our trust in our jobs, in our economy, in all sorts of things. And the question is, could we live the life we're living apart from the Spirit of God? And if the answer to that question is no, then there's a really good chance that we're actually living just like all the other people are living. When the call of God on the lives of the people of God is to be set apart, 
As verse 13 says in chapter 8, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. Don't fear the Assyrians. Don't fear the hardship that could come your way. Don't fear the brokenness that is our world. He is the one you are to revere. He is the one you are to put your hope and your trust in. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the story of God, Genesis chapter 3, there's this interaction between Adam and Eve and Satan where Satan poses a question to Adam and Eve. He says this. He says, did God really say? Can you really trust God? See, See, there's a reality that we have to grapple with in our lives where we have to ask the question, do we believe that God is good? Regardless of circumstance, regardless of what we're experiencing, do we believe he's good? Do we believe that we can trust him? See, it would be easy to look at Isaiah chapter 8, it would be easy to look at our lives and think that the, the rebellion that the people of God were living in was a function of wrong behavior. We think about this, uh, or we talk about this a lot in terms of how we understand what sin is. We, we think of sin or rebellion as doing wrong things. But what's at the root of rebellion? Well, what was at the root of the rebellion of the nation of Israel? What's at the root of, of our inability to put our hope, faith, and trust in God? It's wrong belief. My point is this, it's, it's wrong belief about who God is. It's, it's wrong belief about the goodness and grace of God that causes us to not trust him. It's the wrong belief of the nation of Israel that caused them to not trust God and to look to other things, and it's the same for us. At its core, it's the elevation of self at the expense of God. That's our rebellion. Rebellion doesn't happen outwardly. Rebellion happens inside our hearts. And that is exactly what we see in Isaiah chapter 8. Why did they consult mediums? Why did they turn to the nations? Why did they turn to the Assyrians? Because they didn't believe that God was good. And what did it produce in their life? Look at verse 2 of chapter 9. It says, the people walking in darkness. The fruit of our rejection of God is darkness. Just like it is for the nation of Israel. That's why there's darkness in our world. Many people would look at the darkness in our world and they would say, man, I thought God was good. But the darkness in our world isn't because God isn't good. The darkness in our world is because we've rejected the goodness of God. And this is the reality that we're faced with. That it's our rejection of God that has led to the darkness that we are living in. See, the 
Christmas story of culture wants to skip that. It wants to medicate. It's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on a heart attack victim. It's treating symptoms, but not the root problem. If we just smile, watch Hallmark movies, sing some Christmas carols, it makes us feel good. We laugh, we smile, we cry, wrap a bow on it. But the brokenness, the darkness, it's still there. We're, we're going to celebrate Christmas and we're going to get together with our families. People, some of our families, we, we don't like them. We're going to smile. We're going to not talk about politics and not talk about religion and endure and then get on with our lives. For, for many, this season is, is not a happy, cheery season. It's a se- season of darkness and brokenness and despair. And it's a reminder that I'm alone, that I don't have family, that I lost somebody. It's darkness. It's darkness. There's a beautiful, beautiful reality of the Christian story. If you have your Bibles, go Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 1. There's a word here. It's the word nevertheless. Nevertheless. It's a good word. It's a really good word. In, In other words, what... God is saying to his people through the prophet Isaiah, despite your rebellion, despite your rejection of me, uh, despite your willingness to turn to anyone and anything but me for help, I'm not willing to leave you where you're at. It's good news. It's good news for us because according to this one word, God is not content to leave us where we are at. Uh, regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we haven't done, regardless of what we thought or what we haven't thought, some of us have, have knowingly and willingly rejected God. And, and what we see here is that despite that posture and disposition towards him, he's not willing to leave us there. Some, some of us have just not thought about him. We, we've been in a funk. We've been in a hard place. We've, we've had a hard season. We've made some mistakes. For some of you, it's hard to walk through the doors this morning. Nevertheless, what this word is a picture of is the grace of God. The reality of the Christmas story is that God is pursuing you. He he loves you despite the darkness, despite the rejection. He comes after us. He pursues us. He wants us. Uh, There's this beautiful reality to the grace of God whereby God is not giving us what we deserve, but he's giving us his mercy and grace despite what we've done. Look at what it says in verse 2. It says, the people were walking in darkness. Here's what it says. They have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. 
And here's the, the picture that I want you to see that, that God is trying to paint for us in Isaiah chapter 9 that, that in every way reflects the Christmas story. It's that even though we have chosen darkness, God is going to push his light through. He's going to push his light through the darkness, not just the darkness that is there. I want you to feel this. It's not just the darkness that exists. It's the darkness that we created. Through our rejection of God, there is darkness. And despite our, our unwillingness to come to him, he still pushes through with his light. This word, nevertheless, is the heart of the Christmas story. It's the heart of the Christian story. We have this picture. See, see often when we think of Christmas, we, again, we, we seem to sentimentalize it. You know, to quote Ricky Bobby, we make it about eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus. But what Isaiah wants us to see is that it's about so much more than that. What eight pounds, six ounce baby Jesus is, is the God of the universe coming in the flesh to pursue us and to demonstrate to us that he loves us. It's his light dawning in the darkness. It's a literal and physical representation to us of the grace of God. Oftentimes, the way that we think about God, it can be boiled down into two caricatures of what God is like. On one hand, there's the God of religion, and he's sort of viewed as this up-in-the-sky holy God who's distant kind of like an absentee landlord, right? He only calls when he wants the rent. And his expectation of us is that we would be holy, that we would be good, that we would behave. And if we're not going to be those things or do those things, he's going to smite us. But then on the other hand, there is the, the God of the modern imagination, the, the West Coast, you know, spiritual but not religious picture of God. This is... Uh, the God who is all about love, he's all about tolerance, he's all about acceptance, he's all about relativistic thinking. And as long as you're sincere in your beliefs, it doesn't really matter what you believe. This Isaiah 9 story, the Christmas story, is, is an affront to both of those stories. Both of those caricatures of what God is like. The God of religion would never have come down to us in the form of Jesus to help us, to love us, to serve us, to enter into our brokenness, to meet us in our place of darkness, to press through despite, despite our rejection of him because he would be like an angry parent standing at the top of the stairs just yelling at us to clean our rooms. But then at the same time, the God of our modern imagination would have no need to come down and meet with us. and sit with us, and embrace us. He would just simply overlook the brokenness in our world because in a relativistic worldview, there is no brokenness. And we get this beautiful picture of the Christmas story here of a God who loves us, who cares about us, who pursues us, despite, despite our rejection of him.
His light pushes through the darkness. Nevertheless. So what is this light? What is this light that presses through the darkness that God pursues us with? If you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 9, down in verse 6, says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then in verse 7, it says, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. These verses were were recorded roughly 800 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, why is that important? Uh, Because... Uh, the way that we classically understand biblical prophecy is through this term called double fulfillment. Uh, So whenever we have an Old Testament prophecy that is prophesying about uh, the coming of Christ, there's, there's always two fulfillments. There's an immediate fulfillment. So Israel actually receives an immediate fulfillment of a rescuer who's going to rescue them from their current circumstances, but there's also a future fulfillment. In other words, this is pointing forward to an event that will occur. There's, a, there's an ultimate fulfillment or a meta-fulfillment, if you will. And so we can see this if we look at verse 7. Verse 7, we get this picture of what this fulfillment to this prophecy is, is going to look like. And so we, we can tell, we know that this is a fulfillment that is beyond the immediate moment. Look at just some of the language in verse 7. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. All of these terms, and I won't unpack them all this morning, but let me just say this. All of these terms are terms that are loaded with meaning. If we were living uh, amongst the nation of Israel at this time, all of this language would be what is called messianic language meaning that, yes, the people of God needed to be rescued and redeemed in that moment, but they also acknowledged that there was a bigger rescue and redemption that needed to occur, that humanity was in captivity and bondage. Just like they were in this moment, all of humanity was, all of creation was, and that one day God was going to send somebody who would rescue and redeem, not just from a physical slavery, but from a spiritual slavery that he would undo all the brokenness that is in the world. And all of this language points forward to that day. And so there's this reality that what Isaiah is talking about, what God is promising is one who is going to come and not just free the people from their momentary brokenness, but free all of humanity from its brokenness. That the longing that they have, not just for an immediate salvation, but for an ultimate salvation, the longing that we have, not just for an immediate fix to our problems, but to this longing, this nagging sense that all of us have that something is not right in the world is going to be satisfied and fulfilled by this prophecy, by Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. So what is the light? Verse 6, we see it right here. For unto us a child is born. This underscores the reality that the fulfillment of this prophecy was going to come in the form of a human being, like the flesh, like somebody was going to come in the person. And then the next half of the verse, to us a son is given. 
This isn't just talking about an earthly son, but this is talking about an eternal son, a son that has always existed, that is going to be given. So we know that this is going to be a baby boy, but not just a boy, not just a, not just a human, but an eternal son. Theologically, we would understand this as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is identified not just as a man, but as the God-man. And then we see this other picture here, the the third line in verse 6, and the government will be on his shoulders. In other words, all kingdoms, all rulers of all time will submit to him. What is Isaiah talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus is going to come in the flesh. Why? Why is he going to come in the flesh? Why is he going to come as a baby in the flesh? Because he was going to live the perfect life. He was going to endure all temptation, all hardship, all pain, all suffering that you and I experience. Yet be without sin, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. In other words, this baby who is going to come, this God who's going to come in the flesh is going to be one who we can know, we can experience, we can encounter, we can pray to. He hears our prayers. He he identifies with our longings and our sufferings. Why a son? Well, as I've already said, because Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, was going to step down from heaven and enter into the flesh. But he wasn't going to just live a perfect life. He was going to go to the cross. And who else could pay for all the rejection, rebellion, and brokenness in the world but God himself? One of the mistakes we make about the Christmas story, the Jesus story, is that we equate it with historical fact, just data, sentimentality, I was talking to a Starbucks barista this morning and I go into the same Starbucks to work on my sermons in the morning and we were having a conversation and she was asking me what I was preaching on and I was telling her and, and she said, I go to midnight mass every year. And I said, that's wonderful. So why do you go? Because I like the stories. I like the stories. They're nice stories. They're nice ornaments on the coffee table. But it's so much more than that. This isn't, this isn't just historical data. This is, this is the God of the universe taking on flesh, coming and living a perfect life, but then going to the cross, purchasing, paying for, buying our freedom, and then resurrecting from the grave, promising us eternal life. And the government will be on the shoulders of Jesus, meaning what? That there's a day coming, friends. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, this isn't just a story. Christmas isn't just a story about a baby. It's a story about God coming to us, saving us, and giving us the ability to be reconciled back to him. As Tim Keller writes in his book, Hidden Christmas, if Christmas is just a nice legend, 
Just a nice story, just a bunch of historical facts. In a sense, we are all on our own. But if Christmas is true, then we can be saved by grace. The word Advent means waiting, longing. I want to close with a question, and that is, what are we waiting for? What are we longing for? The invitation of Christmas is to look to Jesus and long for him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you We thank you for your coming. Uh, we thank you for your pursuit of us. Uh, we thank you that despite our rebellion, you pursue us. Lord, we thank you that despite the darkness we might be sitting in, that you're there. Lord, we, we just ask in this season that you would cut through the noise. And that we would see, we would see your light. We would see your dawn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.